All right, everybody, I want to invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me to Philippians chapter 1. We begin a new message series this morning, and over the course of these next 12 to 13 weeks, we're going to be covering all of the verses in the book of Philippians. I find this book perhaps to be the most cordial and the most affectionate letter that Paul wrote. If you want a good background to this letter, then I would highly encourage you to read through Acts chapters 16 through 19. According to Acts chapter 16, this was the first church that Paul established on European soil. And he founded the church on his second missionary journey. And Paul had a relationship with this church that was extremely close. In fact, more than once, this church sent money and supplies to support Paul in his ministry. In fact, at the the time that he wrote this letter, Paul was in prison in Rome. And as soon as the church found out about his imprisonment, they uh, sent needed supplies to help and to assist Paul. And, And they sent those supplies with a messenger whose name was Epaphroditus. Now, we'll get to him later in our series, but Epaphroditus was the messenger that brought the relief, and then Paul penned these words and sent it back with Epaphroditus to share with the church. Now, before we begin with the very first few verses this morning, I want to kind of give you a a very broad sense of the purpose of this letter. I think many purposes, but maybe uh, perhaps the the four major purposes for Paul writing this letter would have been first and foremost so that he could thank the church. He could thank them for their continued love and support and encouragement for him in his ministry. Uh, The second reason why he wrote the letter is because he wished to prevent any criticism for the messenger Epaphroditus. See, what happens is that Epaphroditus became very ill. In fact, he became so ill that he thought he was going to die. And so his return back to the church was delayed for a considerable time period. And so Paul wrote this letter in part so that he could address that delay so as he could prevent any criticism that Epaphroditus might have received because it took so long for him to get back. So that was another purpose for him writing the letter. Uh, Thirdly, Paul wished to call the church to unity. Apparently, there were a couple of ladies that were fighting within the church and they were causing dissension amongst the church. And then finally, the fourth major purpose for the writing of this letter was that Paul wished to call uh, the church uh, to unity and to deal directly with some of the false teachings that were, was occurring at that time. So he heard about some of this false teaching and he hoped to address it rather directly. So that's kind of why he wrote the letter that we're going to spend the next 13 weeks looking at. And in this study, we're going to extract not only the history of the writing and the purpose and the scene at the time, but we're also going to discover uh, what it means for us today. And in fact, this morning, we're going to look at just two verses today. In these two verses, we're going to 
discover kind of like the profile of a healthy church. So with your Bibles open, let's read the first two verses. It says, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi, with the overseers and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Would you pray with me as we begin? Heavenly Father, God, I pray that you would give me your words to say in this moment. Father, speak through me. And for help me to put myself aside so that I would be obedient to, to the Spirit. And Father, as we receive these words, God, may it uh, be received on fertile soil in our hearts. God, challenge us today. Encourage us and convict us where needed. And be glorified through it all. It's in Christ's name I pray. Amen. Now, the very beginning, the first three words, Paul starts off and he says, Paul and Timothy. Now, although Timothy may have served as a scribe from time to time in Paul's ministry, here Paul identifies Timothy not as a co-writer, rather, he identifies him as a co-worker. It's Paul and Timothy. Now, Paul is without a doubt the author of the letter, not just because he identifies Paul and Timothy, but also because I personally believe that Paul penned these words for himself. And the reason why I believe that is because in, in the whole chapters, all four chapters, you'll see the personal pronouns of I and, and my used some, more than 50 times. So there's no doubt that these words were penned from Paul and here Paul identifies Timothy as a co-laborer, someone that was working side by side with him. And here we see that Paul and Timothy had an extremely close relationship. In fact, Timothy was converted uh, to the faith on Paul's first missionary journey. And then when Paul decided to take the second missionary journey, he wished and he desired for Timothy to join him on that journey. And here's what we know about Timothy. You can read in Acts chapter 16. That Timothy had a mother who was Jewish and a father who was Greek. Now Paul and Timothy were extremely close. So close that Paul wanted Timothy to be heard and accepted among the Jewish people. And because uh, Timothy had a Jewish mother, but a father who was a Greek, what that meant was that Timothy was not circumcised. Let that uncomfortable tone of that settle in. Children are like, what does that mean? I might have to tell you, ask your dad when you get home. Well, Paul wanted Timothy to be received. He wanted him to have equal ground so that he could be heard by the Jewish people. And so what does Paul do? Paul takes Timothy and circumcises him. Now that's a close relationship. Timothy is connected to all of Paul's activity in Philippi. In fact, in Acts chapter 19, uh, Paul sends Timothy back to the church. Apart from himself, he tells him uh, to go back. Which leads us to the very first point of what a healthy church is. A healthy church is a church that makes disciples. 
a healthy church makes disciples. And Paul gives us a clear demonstration, an example of what it looks like to make disciples. He invests his life into the life of someone else. Here he poured out himself into a young Timothy. And he taught him, well, he taught him, and he guided him until ultimately releasing him to go and to do the same. That's what disciple making is all about. It's to take someone else under our wing to pour our lives and our heart into their lives, teaching them, guiding them until ultimately we're able to release them so that they can go and do the same for others. May you understand that making disciples is what we've all been called to do. It's not optional. It's what God expects from all of his children. Jesus gives us the words in the Great Commission in Matthew chapter 28, verses 19 through 20. He says, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. There's the Great Commission. To go, not just to go, but to go and to make disciples. Making disciples is a greater call than just making converts. Far too often we stop at the conversion experience of someone and we don't go further to pour ourselves into their lives so that we can make disciples. So we've been called to go and to make her disciples. And that word go literally means a great way to, to understand this verse would be to also say uh, it's as you go or wherever you're at, make disciples. Wherever you're at, make disciples. Wherever you're at, attach your life to someone else, guiding them, teaching them, instructing them in the Word of God, helping them to discover the will of God, and then ultimately releasing them so that they can go and guide and make disciples for themselves. So let's pause here. A healthy church is a church that makes disciples. Therefore, let me ask you, who are you discipling? Who's the person that you've attached your life to theirs? Who's that individual that you are pouring your heart into, guiding, teaching, and instructing them? Who's your disciple? Can you think of one? Do you have a disciple? Or, or maybe better yet, who was your last disciple? How long has it been since you've been discipling someone? If you can't give me an answer to, to who is your disciple currently, or who was in recent history, not 30 years ago, but recent history, who was your disciple, if you can't answer either one of those, then perhaps you can answer, well, who's your potential disciple? Who's that person that you've been watching and that you're ready to truly pour your heart and life into their, their lives, guiding, teaching, 
and, and fulfilling what God has called us all to do. Go, make disciples. So a healthy church is a church that makes disciples. Number two, a healthy church is a church that serves Jesus Christ. He says, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus. That word servant is uh, from the Greek word doulos, and that word literally translates as bond slave. And so uh, in order to fully appreciate what Paul is saying here, we must have a firm understanding of slavery in the context of Paul's writing. So let me give you a couple of points about slavery. Number one, the slave was owned by the master. The slave was owned by the master. And so what Paul was saying is that he was purchased, he was possessed, or he was owned by Jesus Christ. Which means that Jesus looked upon him. He saw him in his dreadful and his needful condition. Then as he looked upon him and in his condition, a most wonderful and glorious thing happened. He purchased him. He bought him. He took possession of him. So a slave was owned by the master, and Paul is saying that I am owned by Christ. The other truth is that the slave served his master. A slave had no other reason for existence other than they served at the pleasure of the master. And this was true for Paul. What Paul was saying that he lived only to serve Jesus Christ. Day by day, hour by hour, moment by moment, no matter what, his desire was to serve Jesus. So, so Paul is saying that he is owned by Jesus. He, he serves Jesus. And then number three, the slave's will, well, that belongs to the master as well. A slave had no will or no ambition on their own. A slave's will and ambition was the will and the ambition of the one that owned them. And so the slave owned owed their total allegiance, all of their obedience went towards their master. And, and so Paul is saying, look, Paul and Timothy, my co-worker, we are bond slaves of Jesus Christ. We are purchased by him. We serve him. We have no will, no ambition of our own. Our will and our ambition is to serve and to glorify God. Now, Paul knew that he belonged to Christ. He even fought and he struggled. According to 2 Corinthians chapter 12, he fought and he struggled to take captive every thought in order to make it obedient unto Christ. And so when Paul said that he was a slave of Christ, he wasn't using that in a derogatory sense. He wasn't complaining. Paul was saying that he had one of the most prized and, and greatest of honor positions or titles that one could have because he belonged to Jesus. And what Paul is saying here is nothing unlike others have said in scriptures. Let me give you some examples. In Deuteronomy chapter 34, 
It's about Moses. It says, So Moses, the servant of the Lord, died there in the land of Moab according to the word of the Lord. So that phrase, servant of the Lord, well, in the Hebrew version, it is the equivalent to the Greek word doulos. But he's still, he's a slave of the Lord. But it wasn't just Moses. In Judges chapter 2, we read this about Joshua. And Joshua, the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord. There's more. Look at what it says about David in 2 Samuel chapter 3. It says, Now then, bring it about. For the Lord has promised David, saying, By the hand of my servant David. It's the same language that's being used. He's my servant. He's my slave. I own him. He belongs to me. Notice what it says about the prophets in Amos chapter 3. For the Lord God does nothing without revealing his secrets to his servants, the prophets. This whole concept of being owned by God, being a slave of Christ, carries into the New Testament as well from other people other than Paul. James, the half-brother of our Lord, says in James chapter 1, verse number 1, James, a doulos, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. And then there's Jude in Jude 1. It says Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and the brother of James. But that isn't just a title of recognition relegated to people of old. It's a title that we bear today, those of us who have put our faith and trust in Jesus Christ. Because this is what the scripture says about us. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse number 24. And the Lord's servants, that's all who believe, the Lord's doulos, bond slaves. Well, what does it say about us? We must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone. Able to teach. Patiently enduring evil. You start talking about slavery and being owned by a master. And in today's language, that kind of makes us uncomfortable. Let me tell you that the great need for today is for men and women to join with Paul and to become true slaves of Jesus Christ. Fact of the matter is, we're all a slave to something or someone. Every single one of us. And don't take my word. That's what the scripture tells us. Notice what it says in Romans chapter 6. It says, but thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed and having been set free from sin have become slaves of righteousness. There it is. We're either a slave to sin or you're a slave of righteousness. Who's your master? We're all slaves. If you're a slave to sin, then Satan's your master. If you're a slave of righteousness, then your master's the Savior. Who's your, who's your master? We're all enslaved to something or someone. So what do we know about a, a healthy church? 
A healthy church is a church that makes disciples. A healthy church is a church that serves God. And thirdly, a healthy church is a church that is filled with saints. Notice it goes on to say, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi. You understand that the Bible never uses the word saints to refer to dead people. The Bible never uses the word saints to refer to a few select individuals within the church who have died and post-mortem have received some special title of recognition. That's not scriptural. The Catholic Church can teach that, but it's wrong. The fact of the matter is, if you're a child of God, then according to the Word of God, you're a saint. Now, our problem is, we just don't look very saintly. But that's who he's talking to. It's to the saints. Saints refer to all believers. And the word saints simply means to be set apart or to be separated. So every believer who, have, who has truly placed their faith and trust in Jesus Christ has been separated from the world and has been set apart for the glory of God. We're separated and we're set apart. The setting apart is referred to in the big churchy language as sanctification. You heard that word before? The sanctification. Let me share with you real quick that there are three stages to sanctification. Maybe you'll find this interesting. This is bonus for today. The first stage of sanctification is positional sanctification. Positional sanctification. What that means is that when someone places their faith and trust in Jesus Christ, then positionally they are immediately set apart for God. This is a permanent, once and for all movement. It is also uh, referred to as being uh, justified or justification. So, so positional sanctification means I put my faith and trust in God, and then positionally, He moves me. I've been justified. I've been removed from the penalty of sin. What's the penalty of sin? Death, right? What does John chapter 3, verse number 16 tell us? Come on. Somebody tell me. Oh, my, come on, man. It's like we start off so good. For God so loved the world, and he gave us everlasting life. God so loved the world, he gave his one and only son, that whosoever believes in him shall not perish, but, what? But have, have everlasting life. It doesn't say, but will have everlasting life. No, positionally, you now have everlasting life. You stepped over from death unto life, eternal life. So there's this positional sanctification, all right? And then the second stage is progressive sanctification. 
What does progressive sanctification mean? Well, that means that the believer makes a deliberate decision to allow the Spirit of God to take them and to conform them into the image and the likeness of Jesus Christ. It is a process. It is a process of spiritual growth and maturity. Uh, That progressive sanctification means that we're striving day by day by day to get further and further away from our sin and to get closer and closer into the image and to the likeness of Jesus. So this progressive sanctification also refers to uh, maturation or or Christ-like maturity. So we have the positional sanctification and then we have progressive sanctification. And notice that we all progress on, on different speeds at times. We're at different places in that, in that progress. So we have to be patient with one another. We need to endure, be long-suffering in how we handle each other, how we relate to each other, how we encourage each other, not to be frustrated that someone doesn't seem to be quite as spiritually with it as you are, but to take the time with their growth and their development. And then that third stage of sanctification is an eternal sanctification. An eternal sanctification. The day is coming when all believers will be perfectly set apart without any sin, without any failure. This is also referred to as glorification. Scripture tells us in Colossians chapter 3, verse number 4, when Christ, who is your life, appears, that you also will appear with him in glory. That's that glorification process that is now, we've now entered into that third and final stage of sanctification, the eternal sanctification. That glorified state will be our ultimate separation from sin. It kind of goes like this. There's a justification. Justification separates us uh, from the penalty of sin. So justification sets us apart, separates us from the penalty of sin. And then you have maturation. Well, that separates us and sets us apart from the power of sin or from the practice of sin. And then ultimately, glorification, well, that separates us from the very presence of sin. Three different stages. It's a wonderful truth. Like, do you know that there are three tenses to your salvation? Salvation is in three tenses. There's the past, there's the present, and there's the future tense. For those that put your faith in Jesus Christ, and like me, I have put my faith in Jesus, therefore I have been saved. That's in the past. I have been saved from the penalty of sin. But thankfully, God didn't stop with that. Not only have I been saved, I am being saved day by day, moment by moment, month by month from the very practice of sin. If I live in faithful obedience to him, until one day I will be saved from the presence of sin. Three stages of sanctification. The three tenses of our salvation. Oh, I hope you find some joy today. So what does the healthy church look like? 
A healthy church is a church that makes disciples. A healthy church is a church that serves God. A healthy church is a church that's filled with saints. And then number four, a healthy church organizes for ministry and has leaders who lead by example. So the last phrase in verse number one. To all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and the deacons. So, so here, Paul identifies two specific groups of leaders within the church. Overseers and deacons. Let's start with the word overseers. That word, we don't usually use that type of language today. But in the New Testament, that word overseer is used interchangeably with words like bishop. We don't really use that in the Baptist church. But elders, you heard that one before. All three of those are used interchangeably, all referring to the same person, the same position, the same title, overseer, bishop, elders. They're all the same, right? And so according to the book of Titus, the, the elder or the overseer, their primary responsibility is to exhort and to oversee the lives of the believers. It is in spiritual direction and teaching and encouragement. So you have this, this overseers or the elders or the bishops of the church, and that's their role and responsibility. And then there's another uh, class of, of leadership, and that's referred to as deacons. And so deacons were spiritually minded men who dedicated themselves to serving the saints. And our church has some wonderful deacons. We have deacons who, who have fully embraced the calling to minister to widows and widowers. Who fully embraced the calling uh, to, to take care, to look after, to provide assistance to those that are, that are poor or, or those that are sick. Deacons serve. The primary action of a deacon is that of service. They serve the saints. Not only do they serve the saints, which means the church, but they also engage in that service so that they can relieve the elders or the overseers of the church of some of those responsibilities so that the overseers or the elders can focus more intensely upon the the preaching of God's Word, the teaching of God's Word, and on prayer. And so what do we see from this? Well, we need to make sure that a healthy church is a church that organizes for ministry, but you also have leaders who lead by example, which means we must be very careful who we ordain, and we should only ordain those people in leadership who have proven themselves, who have demonstrated that they have that leadership quality in them. And then also means that the elders and the overseers and the deacons of the church must be diligent in their responsibilities. What do I mean by that? Let me put it this way. How can we ever expect for the saints for the congregation, how can we ever expect for the congregation to witness, to serve, to faithfully give, if the leaders in the church aren't demonstrating the practice and the priority 
of witnessing and serving and giving. So when I asked you earlier, who is it that you are discipling? Who is it that you've just discipled? Or who is it that you're potentially going to disciple? Know this. And here's a preview, deacons. This coming Saturday, that's my question for you. So you got some work to do. Let's figure it out. Because I want us to set the example for the church. Because we've got a lot of work that needs to be done. I'm not talking about cosmetic work, although, hey, I can finally see you today because all the lights in this place got replaced this past week. (laughs) How that gets so much enthusiasm, I don't know. But I can see you now. That's kind of exciting for me. Now I can really see who's awake and who's falling asleep. (laughs) But the greatest need that we have within this church is to encourage each other and to equip one another so that we could walk out of this building with a purpose and a plan to take the gospel of Jesus Christ to every single person in this community. That's our goal. We are going to glorify him, to seek to make his glory known among every person in Kingsland and around. But we need leaders that will demonstrate and lead by example. Look at verse number 2, and then we're almost done. Verse number 2 says, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Okay, so a healthy church makes disciples, serves God, is filled with saints, Uh, organizes for ministry and has leaders that lead by example. And then finally, a healthy church experiences grace and peace. Let me unpack these two terms with us real quick. Grace means the undeserved favor and the blessing of God. The key to understanding grace is that word undeserved. There's not a single one of us in here, myself included, that deserves the grace of God. We don't deserve it. We are imperfect, and he is perfect. And think about it. At some point in our life, or maybe even right now, we have rejected God. We have denied him. We have disobeyed him. We have ignored him. We have neglected him. Some of us, we've even questioned him. I think you get the point. We should expect nothing from God other than his judgment and condemnation. But God is love. And in his love, he makes it possible for us to experience his grace through the salvation that is extended to us through his son, Jesus Christ. That's grace. And then you have peace. Well, peace means uh, to be bound, uh, to be joined, or, or to be weaved together with God. Peace means that we have the assurance and the confidence of the love and the care of God. Peace means that, that we know that ultimately God will provide for us, that God will sustain us, that God will strengthen us. Peace means that we know that ultimately God will deliver us or that God will save 
us. And the only way that we can ever experience true, genuine peace is to have faith in and through Jesus Christ. Peace only comes from the Son. And Jesus said it in John chapter 14, verse number 27. It's my last verse. But Jesus says, peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. As we come to a close this morning, I wonder, do you have the peace of God in your life? Are you experiencing His peace in your circumstance or situation today? If not, why not? Could it be the reason why you don't have His peace is because you don't have a relationship with God that is rooted in faith in Jesus? If that's the case, today be the day that you just cry out to the Father and say, God, I'm yours. I'm all in. I believe in your Son. I put my faith in Jesus. Help me. And maybe you are a child of God and you're struggling with the absence of peace in your life. Could it be that the reason why you're struggling with the absence of that peace is because of sin? You're, you're not focusing on God. You're focusing more on the problem or the circumstance than you are upon the Savior. I don't know. But this is what I do know. That I will stay here as long as necessary to talk with each and every one of you if you should desire. So that you can know with full confidence that when you leave here, that you yourself leave having received both the grace and the peace of God. We're going to move into a time of invitation. We don't make this a long time. We don't draw it out. We don't try to manipulate you into making a decision. But just know that now's the time. If you'd like to, to make a decision for Christ, if you want to join the church, if you'd like to get baptized, if you'd like to have prayers for you or your circumstance, We'd love to do nothing but help you right now. We need to know how we can help. So let's pray, and then let's worship a little bit longer. Father, thank you for today. Thank you for this church. Thank you for the journey that we're on. Help us to keep our eyes focused on you. And even in this moment, may your spirit guide and convict us of the decisions that we need to make in order to honor and glorify you. So be with us during this time. Be pleased by what you see in us. It's in Christ's name I pray. Amen. I want to invite you to stand. Let's stand. Let's sing this time of invitation. And if we can help you in any way, you come.